Our topic this week, moving all the way to Genesis chapter 4. Abel and Cain. We're going to spend a few weeks here. Uh, right, <laughs> right and wrong worship is the theme for this evening. Genesis 4 verse 1, Adam and Eve, his wife, uh, Adam knew, sorry, Adam knew his, Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. And so the first children to be brought forth, we don't know what year it was, we don't know how long after the flood, before this took place, we have the command to be fruitful and multiply. And so, again, we don't know how quickly that took place, but the animal kingdom, no doubt, was giving birth. They, they have a, many animals have a shorter gestation period than, than humans, and so for Adam and Eve to see these little critters and bugs or, you know, whatever, and and uh, mammals and little cats and cubs and all different kinds of little cute little things. You know, they're usually cuter when they're, well, not always, but a lot of times they're, they're cuter when they're, when they're still babies. And, uh, and so to see them and, and, and then for the maternal instincts to start hitting Eve and wanting a child of their own and when are we going to have a little child like, our, like, like these other animals? And so you can imagine... When, what would be going through their mind, and then as she uh, got pregnant and went through the pregnancy and the changes that take place with, with that, and that was part of the curse that was placed upon her, that she'd be saved in childbearing. And, uh, oh yes, <laughs> you experienced that yourself. So, so, uh, uh, and then when they finally gave birth to the first child, and it seems to be Cain, maybe not, it's the first one who's mentioned, so it might have been the first child. And Cain comes along and remembering the promise that a child will come forth from your seed who will crush the serpent's head and the great anticipation, this child, this is going to be the one to liberate us, bring us back into the Garden of Eden to finally crush that serpent's head. And then, you know, a baby doesn't look like a, you know, they've never seen a baby human before. Right? They were both created as adults. This was different. This was a change. And, uh, you know, as it comes forth, and, and people always say, oh, that baby's so cute. You know, sometimes it's the ugliest thing in the world, you know, as they come out. You know, you, you just know they're lying, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Take a look at that. That it's not the cutest thing in the world I've ever seen. <laughs> I've seen cuter kittens than that, you know, <laughs> what are you talking about? But, uh, oh, it's so cute. But, uh, but they are, they, they can't do anything, and there it is, uh, you know, burping and pooping and, 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 and vomiting, <laughs> his tiny little fingers and, you know, and, and just sleeping all the time. And they're looking at this thing. This is, this is the new creature. This is the new life that's come forth again. Never seen anything like that. And, and it's always, you know, exciting for a couple to have their, their first child, even if they've other, seen other children be born and, and, and nieces, nephews, or friends. And uh, it's not just quite the same. And so then for them to bring forth this first child, into this earth, this fallen earth. The, uh, the anticipation, the hopes, the dreams, and then the raising of a child under that setting. And they named it Cain, which means acquired. But it says here, she, Eve said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. But his name is not acquired from the Lord, his name is just acquired. 
Now, maybe at one time it was acquired from the Lord. Maybe it was Canel or Kenya or something like that. Uh, but maybe now, later on, after they, they saw his character manifested, maybe now, historically looking back, is renamed just Cain. And then Abel. Abel's an interesting name. Abel means vanity. Means uh, just kind of a you know wisp of smoke, or just here today, gone tomorrow, just a fleeting moment. And again, that might not have been his original name. That might have been just what he is called since his life was. We know the story, if you're familiar with the story, that it gets taken out before he gets to fully live it out. That he was there for a time and then gone from them. And in a moment, he was gone uh, unexpectedly, kind of like a. And it's a life of vanity or just kind of a, uh, a smoke and gone. And so either that was what they named him afterwards or referred to him afterwards, or, or maybe prophetically, maybe God impressed them and that was the name they gave prophetically to him. But either way, it's a kind of interesting name for him. And he might have been the second child born. We don't necessarily know that. Again, there might have been others because I remember my grandfather saying, uh, and he never read the Bible, but... Um, Oh, there was Cain and there was Abel, and, and Cain killed Abel. So where do all the people come from? <laughs> well, I started to read the Bible, and I told him, well, Grandpa, it says in Genesis chapter 5, the next chapter over, verse 5, and all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he had sons and daughters. So there were plenty of people, lots of people. They can have a lot of children in 900 years, and in 900 years they can have lots of children. And so there was plenty of people, and when we read on over the next few weeks, the rest of the story, we see that there were people alive when the event of Genesis chapter 4 takes place. So we don't know how old they were when this story takes place. Verse 2, now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And we look at most artist renditions of it. They didn't have cameras back then, otherwise we'd have a photograph. But, uh, but since we don't, uh, the artists just generally depict them as fairly young. Now, when you live 900 years, I guess even 100 years old would look maybe pretty young. But uh, they might have been 100 years old at this point. There might have been lots of, well, you know, there were lots of other people uh, around. And as this story takes place, Adam and Eve are not mentioned in the beginning of the story at all. So they seem to have been maybe out on their own. This is not like a young family gathering take place in this chapter. So it tells us a little bit about their occupations. And uh, so Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain was a tiller of the ground, right? And, uh, and you ever hear, you know, what is the, the oldest profession, right? What is the oldest profession? Anyone know? What is said is the oldest profession? Prostitution, right, right, yeah. But the Bible says the oldest profession is farming, right? That's the oldest profession. Yeah, so I don't know where they get that from, or I guess maybe that's the perverted mindset of the world, right? That they think prostitution is the oldest profession. Well, by far, it was not the oldest profession. Who knows when that came along? But the oldest profession, if you read the Bible, is farming. Right, it says they were shepherds and tillers of the ground. And so that is the oldest profession. And so Abel was a shepherd. Now, they weren't eating sheep then. They didn't eat uh, meat and eat sheep for another like 1,800 years, 1,800 or so years. 
before, after the flood, that they began to eat meat. So it would have been for uh, clothing, the wool for clothing, and, 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 and for sacrificing, and then uh, with sacrificing, and then they'd have the skins for clothing and, and maybe other materials that they would use the, the bones or the insides for. And so they'd have a shepherd for those purposes and, and maybe others. Uh, maybe they were drinking goat's milk, I'm not sure, but, uh, but we know they weren't eating the meat. And then Cain was a tiller of the ground, so he was a, a farmer working with the soil and growing crops. So that was their main professions of these two. Again, they might have been out on their own by this time and had their own farms, their own homes, might have even been married. Verse 3, in the process of time, so some jump of time, it doesn't tell us how long, but a process of time, so a jump in time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but to Cain and to, Cain and to his offering, he did not respect. And that is going to be our theme for this week regarding these two individuals. That God did not respect Cain and did not respect his offering. So he did not respect either. He respected Abel. God respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain. And he did not respect his offering. And so our focus specifically tonight is on the offering aspect of it. In another week, some other week, we'll, we'll cover why God did not respect Cain. Because he could have respected Cain but not his offering. Or he could have uh, respected his offering and, and not Cain. But uh, here he did not respect Cain nor his offering. And so there were problems with both. And so this week, let's look at what would be wrong with his offering. Well, we see here that Cain offered from his produce. Well, he was a farmer. He tilled the soil, and so that is what he had. So what would be wrong with that? Abel, he was a shepherd, so he gave of his flock, and that was what was accepted. Now, we do know a little bit already because of, even though we're just in chapter 4, but God had already established with their parents what type of offering would have been the appropriate offering. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, for Adam and Eve, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. So God clothed them from skins right outside the Garden of Eden, right after they are sent out of the garden. God clothes them, and he clothes them with skins of animals. But where would he get skins of animals? Nothing had died in the Garden of Eden. Nothing had died yet. So it had to be from the sacrifices that they would have had to offer in order to receive forgiveness of sins. And so they had never seen anything die. They had never even seen a leaf fall from a tree. Never even seen a blade of grass turn brown. And here they're having to take animals that they named 
animals that they knew, animals that they had interaction with, and take some little lamb that they saw born and sacrifice it and to kill it. To slit its throat, place it upon an altar, and burn it before the presence of the Lord. Or for God bringing down fire upon it and accepting it and showing his acceptance. We don't know how God showed his acceptance of Abel's and not of Cain's, but it might have been a fire coming down and consuming the sacrifice, and maybe that's how God took their first sacrifice, Adam and Eve's. But it would have been a blood sacrifice. And then from that sacrifice, we see the mercy and love of God. He takes their skins of those animals, and God himself forms and crafts personally for them clothing to cover their shame, to cover their nakedness, to cover their sin, and cover him, cover them with himself. And so here they're symbolically offering up God. God is offering himself as the sacrifice, symbolically here, as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that they may receive atonement, be made at one against, again with God. Because the sin had separated them from God, and God steps in and provides a way for them to be able to have communion again once with him. And so, no doubt this was done, the story was told, and this process was done over and over again in the presence of Abel and Cain. And so they had ample opportunity to know what is the appropriate sacrifice for atonement, what needed to be brought, what needed to be given to the Lord. Now, Cain was a farmer and tilling the soil, so what would he need to do to be able to get a sacrifice of this type? He'd have to approach his brother. He'd have to go to his brother and ask or trade and maybe he didn't want to. So he brings an offering of his own, of the produce of his field, a bloodless sacrifice. And even though the Torah is not written till later on, the principle is an everlasting principle. Leviticus 17, verse 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so the blood is the atonement. It is the blood that brings us back to God. It is the blood that makes us at one with God. It is the blood that bridges the gap between us and God. And not just any blood but a blood of the Lamb, the blood of the Lord, the blood of the Messiah, who would come as the fulfillment of these sacrifices. That is what reconnects us with God. It's not our own good works. It's not our own good deeds. It's not what we can give to God. And that's what Cain was wanting to do. Cain was not an atheist. 
He wasn't denying God. He didn't say, oh, I don't even believe in God in, or, or just in total rebellion. I don't even want to talk to him. No, he built, a, he built an altar. He brought a sacrifice. He presented it to God. So he wasn't in denial about God. But he didn't want to do it God's way. He wanted to do it his way. He didn't want to humble himself and ask his brother. He didn't want to humble himself before the Lord. He wanted to bring something of his own. And God did not receive it. Now some will say, well, maybe it was not a good produce, maybe it was bad produce. I don't necessarily know if that's the case. Yeah, because he did bring it to God. He did build the altar. Problem is, it's missing the blood. Again, that's a theme we already saw in Genesis chapter 3, and here again, repeated in Leviticus 17 and many places throughout the scriptures. And in this place in Leviticus 17, just before this verse and just after this verse, where it says the life of the flesh is in the blood, he tells us don't eat the blood. That we're not to eat the blood. Well, flesh was not eaten until after the flood. And here, Leviticus 17, written after that, says if you're going to eat the flesh, but it cannot have any blood in it. Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And the blood is representation of the sacrifice of the Messiah. And thus we're not to take it, we're not to eat it. It belongs to the Lord. It is his, and it is what makes the atonement for us. It is what gives life. Gives life while it's in the animal. Gives life while it's presented for us to give us life. Because it was the life of the Messiah that was given for us. And so not to eat it. No doubt for health reasons as well, but in the spiritual level here, it is for the atonement. It is to be given to God, not kept for ourselves. And so Cain was withholding a blood sacrifice from the Lord by just giving fruits or vegetables or the his produce of his field. It is blood that makes all the difference. The blood sacrifice. Matthew 28, verse, or 26, verse 28. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Yeshua here at the last Passover, prophesying that he's going to shed his blood just hours before he dies, in a bloody death, whipped so he's bleeding and beaten, so he's bleeding literally from head to toe, that it's his blood that makes remission of sins, that removes the sins from us. There is no removal of sins without the blood. The blood is the cleanser. And when we come to the Lord without the blood, without the sacrifice, there is no atonement. Yom Kippur is coming up pretty soon in our yearly cycle here. We can go and beat our chests and we can fast and we can say all kinds of prayers, but without a blood sacrifice, as the Lord ordained, there's no forgiveness of sins. We can give gifts, we can 
do penance, we can give offerings, but without the blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no acceptance of the sacrifice to the Lord. There's no receiving of the offering to the Lord. Because from the very beginning, when sin entered this world, until sin was finally removed, a blood sacrifice needed to be given. Now, there's no temple today. How can we offer a sacrifice? We don't need a temple. God has provided himself, as, as, Abraham told, as God told Abraham. Abraham shared with his son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. God has provided himself as the sacrifice in the Messiah. And thus, when the Messiah was sacrificed, the temple, the curtain in the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom, from heaven down. Yeshua cried out, it is finished. The atonement has been paid. The price has been paid for our sins. And though since it's paid, it's no longer ours, he has bought them. They belong to him, they don't belong to us. And if we hold on to our sins, we are stealing from God. We mentioned that last week, it's worth repeating. Do not hold on to the sins. Confess them to God. Surrender them to him. And the way to receive forgiveness, the way to receive the removal of the sins, he will call his name Yeshua, for he will... Save us from our sins, not in our sins. He removes the sins. There's a remission of sins. There's a taking away of the sins. It's removed from us. As far as the east is from the west, going in opposite directions. Our sins are taken and cast down to the depths of the sea. We are set free through the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. That is where the power is. And Cain's offering was a bloodless offering. Thus there was no power. Thus there was no sanctifying. Thus there was no cleansing. Thus there was no removal. Thus there was no remission of sins. That was the problem with his sacrifice. And many today also come to the Lord. Basically, every religion in the world is a work-based religion. The vast majority of people in the world have a bloodless religion of trying to draw near to God by their own offerings, by their own gifts, by their own works, by their own deeds. No matter what it is, no matter what religion it would be, even Atheists and even agnostics have a religion of their own. Well, they don't acknowledge God. Everyone has a God, whether it's ourselves or our stuff or our opinions. There's something that we worship. There's something that we put up that's most important to us. And it's all attempt, you know, again, our, for self, it's fame or it's for uh, acknowledgement or for friends or getting lots of people to like your posts on social media or whatever it is that feeds you your ego. We all want approval. We all want acceptance. We all want betterment in our lives in some way, shape, or form. But there's nothing, there's no improvement without the blood of the Lamb. 
There's no acceptance between us and God. There's no cleansing. There's no change. There's no eternal change. There's no real change without the blood of the Lamb. There's no remission. There's no power to be transformed. There's no victory, real lasting victory. There's transference of habits, but there's no lasting victory without the blood of the Lamb. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So it takes confession and an acceptance of the work that God has already done because he's already paid the price. While we were yet sinners, Yeshua died for us. Before we came to him, before we confessed, before we knew him, before we were born, he's already paid the price. Thus we're born already with forgiveness prepaid for us. For all our sins before we've ever committed them. The price has already been paid. Kind of like you have a wonderful benefactor and puts the hotel room on his credit card and says whatever they charge up, just put it to my bill. And like the good Samaritan who brought the, the wounded man into the inn and said, whatever else it costs, put it on my tab. God says, whatever they do from here on out, put it on my tab. But knowing that every time we sin, every time we choose to rebel against God, every time we know, willingly, knowingly, consciously choose to disobey God's word, we are killing the Messiah again. We are crucifying him afresh. We are the ones taking the knife, and again, you can imagine the agony for Adam and Eve to kill that first, never saw anything die, and for it to go limp in their arms. And someone said to me recently, if they had to do that, they can understand more how it would be harmful, how it would be horrible to sin. You have to kill your own animal. Well, how much more picture yourself killing God? Putting those nails into his hands. You being the one that is hitting the nails, not some Roman soldier without name. But it is you crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It is you making him bear the wood. It is you hanging him there. It is you piercing the spear into his side. When we sin, we are causing his sacrifice, his blood, atonement, to be shed again and again. So while the price is already paid, let us not take that blood in vain. Let us not trample upon it, but count it as precious. And by his grace and by his power, Choose not to disobey him anymore. And that is where the power comes from, is from his sacrifice. To not do it anymore. To not continue in sin. It's only by the power and blood. It's not from willful choices. It's not from determination. It's not from trying harder. And so even though, again, the vast majorities of the religions of the world and non-religions of the world have a work-based behavior modification, 
attempt at betterment even among Bible readers. There are large amounts of us, and no doubt all of us at some point in time in our lives, that are trying to receive God's approval without having the blood of the Lamb go before us. It might be in one area of our lives, one area that we say, oh, I can do this. I can tackle this, you know, subconsciously. And then we just try and overcome it before we break down and realize I'm not getting anywhere. God, and no longer just help me, but God, change me. And that's what it takes, surrender. And that's what Cain wasn't willing to do. He wasn't willing to surrender his way for God's way. He wasn't willing to admit his need. Hey, look, I'm a good guy. I did good work. I've got this good fruit. I've got this good product, this good sacrifice for you. Why won't you receive it? Why won't you accept it? Because there's no good in us. The only good one is him. It is his goodness that needs to cover our sins. And while it's easy to surrender, I mean, how hard is it to throw down your weapon? How hard is it to fall on the ground? How is it to lift up your hands? I surrender. Right? To wave a white flag. It steps in the, right, the heart of pride. And we're filled with pride, and that is why it's hard. But physically, it's not hard. But it's the self inside us. It's the carnal nature that doesn't want to surrender. And Cain did not want to admit that he was a sinner in need of a substitute. Something to stand in his place. No matter how good we may be, we need that sacrifice. Like Yeshua said to the rich young ruler, said, I've done all these things since I was young. I'm a basically good person, right? We've talked about that over the last few weeks. It's not being basically good. Another, oh, well, I'm born in the character of God. I'm born in the image of God. I'm basically, I'm good. No, we're not basically good. And since the fall, we are in the nature of the devil. And we need the blood to cover us. We need to be clothed with his skins, with his sacrifice, with his righteousness. And that's what Cain wasn't willing to acknowledge. And again, many of us, and all of us at some point in time in our lives, refuse to acknowledge. To surrender that area. God, I can't. You step in. I can do nothing. Without you. And that's very liberating. <laughs> very liberating. Knowing I can do nothing. God, you step in, you do it. When I'm weak, you are strong. I can do all things through the Messiah who strengthens me. But he can't come in and work while we're still there working in his way. We have to get out of the way. We have to surrender and fall down and let him step in and do his work. As long as we continue to try and try and try, we're just offering the offering of Cain. But it's surrendering and being covered with his blood, with his sacrifice. That makes all the difference. And when Moses sanctified the people, he sprinkled the blood upon the people. We need to be sprinkled with, his, with the Messiah's blood, with his sacrifice, 
symbolically, spiritually, by surrendering, confessing. Acknowledging, Lord, I have need of you. I blew it here, I made a mistake here, I have this heart, I have this nature, I have this tendency. I confess it. And then Yeshua paid for it. When you pay for something, you take it home with you, right? You don't just go to the store and buy a, pay for an item and leave it there. If you did, you go back and you say, I forgot it. He paid for it. He took it home with him. Someone buys your car, you give them the key, right? You let go. You let them drive it away. You don't just take the money and say, no, 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 I still want that car. He's washed us clean. You wash your hands, the dirt goes down the drain and removed from you. It's removed. Remission of sins. Removed from us. It's the blood that does the washing. Yeshua's sacrifice. Everything needs to be covered with him. Everything. Every part of our lives. God, you step in. You work here. Because you are the one who is worthy. Because you died for my sins, in my place. And thus we died with him. And then we live in him. He lives in us. But only if we get out of the way, only as we surrender, only as we accept him and let him do his work. Hebrews 9, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and of ashes of heifers sprinkle the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Right, so the blood of goats and bulls and all of that had a purpose and it sanctified for the flesh. But we had to continue to offer them year by year and day by day, morning and evening. Sacrifices were offered. But then God, and, and as good as that was and as helpful as that was, Yeshua comes along with a much more better sacrifice in sacrificing himself. We looked in a few weeks ago, uh, Romans 5, the much more chapter. Well, here, still much more, the much more shall the blood of Messiah. If the sacrificing of a dumb animal that needs a shepherd to keep it from eating poisonous leaves, to keep it from wandering off and falling off a cliff, to keep it from wandering from the group and getting lost, this dumb animal can sanctify us and purify us and provide forgiveness of sins. How much more the eternal God who gave himself and the lamb who doesn't willingly give himself, but who gave himself. The intelligent being who created all things. Master of the universe. How much more is precious is his blood, is his sacrifice in our behalf? How much more of a sacrifice is that? For us to take one of our lambs from our flock and sacrifice it, how much more for the father to give his only begotten son? How much more of a sacrifice is that in our behalf? Oh, what great love. 
And Cain wasn't even willing to get a, a, a lamb, to get a sheep, to get a bull, to get a goat, to get something. Wasn't even willing to do that. And yet the father was willing to give his son. And Yeshua was willing to give his life, and if necessary, eternal life, to never be put back on the throne, to never see heaven again, to never see the Father again, to be blotted out forever, that's what he was willing to do. How much more will that blood sanctify us and cleanse us and be able to present us without spot because he lived a sinless life by God's grace? He's able to cleanse our conscience, our mind, our motives, our desires, our inward being, not just the outward doings, but change us from within. And that's where the power takes place. Yeah, it's not outwardly trying harder. It's not by being better, saying the right words, doing the right thing, smiling at the right time. It's a change of mind, a change of heart a change of desire, that it wells up inside and lives out of us and cleanses us of the dead works. Every work without him is dead. Every good deed, every, all our righteousness is like filthy menstrual cloths, the best that we can offer to God. The dead works, the offerings of our own product. But his blood cleanses us of those dead works and gives us the power to truly serve the living God in righteousness and in holiness with power through his spirit, through the eternal spirit who then comes into us, lives in us, and lives out of us crucifies the flesh, crucifies self, destroys the carnal nature, removes it out of us, takes it, and buries it in the tomb with the Messiah. And then we come up in newness of life, living by his grace, living by his power. The so young ruler came to Yeshua, Yeshua gave him a list of things. I've done all of these things since I was young, all these good deeds I've done in my whole life. Yeshua gave him one command and he wasn't willing to do it. Because he's broken them all. And he went away sorrowful. Wasn't willing to surrender all. And follow Yeshua in spirit and truth. He thought his good works was enough. His dead works was enough. Nicodemus came before the Lord. You must be born again. He was filled with good works. Righteous rabbi. You might need to be born again. He was willing. He surrendered. Eventually. Saul of Tarsus. You need to surrender. Stop resisting me. Oh yeah, you're good. Oh yeah. You've done all these righteous deeds. They're all dead works without the covering of the blood of the Lamb, without the Messiah. He also thankfully surrendered and then served the living God. 
by his power, by his grace. So how can we know whether we're doing good works or dead works? How can we know if we're serving the living God by his power, by his grace, or if it's us doing it? How do we know we're offering an offering of Cain? Well, outwardly, you might not be able to tell. It'd be hard to tell the difference between the good deeds of the, of the young rich man and, and the deeds of Nicodemus or the deeds of Saul before or after. They all look good, all doing the right things, giving tithe, going to services, obeying God, eating the right things, worshiping on the right day, reading the right scriptures, praying the right prayers. So how can we tell the difference? We might not be able to tell outside, but we can tell for ourselves. These are two of the ways. Are we doing it joyfully? Scriptures say God's words, God's commandments are not burdensome. And so if we find it a burden to be obeying, and maybe just in one area, maybe a lot of areas, we're happily, joyfully obeying. But maybe there's just one area where we're resisting. Maybe doing it, maybe outwardly, but not really wanting to do it. Doing it grudgingly. In that area, we're doing it in our own strength, not in God's power. And then what is our attitude towards others? Now, we might have been doing it righteously for a long time, but then for some reason or another, got off track. Like, for example, we might have been giving tithes and offerings faithfully and cheerfully for a long time. And then some financial thing comes in our lives and now we're starting to worry and now things are getting tight and now we're starting to, and now we're still giving because we've been in the habit of giving but now we're just really worried about it and really not wanting to. But we're still doing it. We're doing it out of our own dead works and not cheerfully by the Holy Spirit living in us. And so then secondly, what is our attitude towards others? We're looking at others and, well, they're not doing like I'm doing. They're not living it the way I'm living it. They're not talking like I talk. They're not doing as much as I'm doing in that area, whatever area you become a pro in. And you expect everybody else to be a pro in that area too when we're leaving, living as legalists. We're li living through dead works. When we're living by our own power. And maybe just in that area, one area. Like that young man, it was only one area. He said, just one area. Maybe just one area. And we're living in dead works and we're condemning others. We're not being convicted on that same time, that same thing at this same time that I've been convicted on it. They should all be convicted on that same thing when I'm convicted on it. That's not how it works. God works on each one of us individually and takes us all step by step and gives the gift of conviction and repentance for each of us as he grows each of us individually. But if we're condemning and judging and harsh on others, then that's an evidence to ourselves that we're doing dead works in that area of our lives. And so what's the solution? If we realize I'm living at dead works in that one area of my life, that I'm finding it burdensome and I'm finding it a struggle and I'm not, there should be a struggle against the flesh, but I'm doing a struggle, I'm not really wanting to and, and, and resistant and grudgingly and not happily and not cheerfully, or I'm condemning others, what do we do? 
We confess that to the Lord. <laughs> we surrender that area. We say, God, I confess that I've been doing this grudgingly. I've been doing this unhappily. I've been doing this in my own works, in my own power, in my own strength, my own fruit bringing to you. I confess that. Confess self has been all over that. And I accept your gift of repentance. I accept your gift of confession. Accept your conviction. And I accept your forgiveness. I accept the blood that has been already shed in my behalf. And I want that to be placed on my record book. I want that to be covered on my conscience and remove this sin from my heart and mind and life so it is no longer there. Wash it away down to the depths of the sea. And now fill me with the eternal spirit and live that area in my life. Sanctify me in that area. Live through me in that area. Make me cheerful and joyful and empower me and move me forward in that area of my life. Makes all the difference in the world. Doing it in our own strength or doing it in God's strength. And that's the difference. That's really the difference between Abel and Cain. Abel was acknowledging, I have nothing. Here's the blood sacrifice. And Cain saying, here's the best I can do. Hebrews 10, verse 19, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Yeshua, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Well, there's a lot there. Let's take it apart. Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Yeshua. Boldness. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace to, refine, to find help in our time of need. God invites us now because that tore, that curtain between the holy and the most holy has been rent. So now a new and living way where it used to be with the sanctuary, only one person, the, young, uh, the, the Kohen Gadol, and only on one day, Yom Kippur, was allowed into the most holy place. And even he had to go with blood. He couldn't go without blood. Now we are all invited in to come before God's presence, to come before his face, to come before his throne, boldly, not on our own, not because of our own merits, not because of our own goodness, which we have none, but because of the blood of the sacrifice that's been given in our behalf. Yeshua has invited me in. He has sprinkled his blood upon this altar. And he has invited me to come and sit at his right hand with you. Come boldly right before God. Come into the Holy of Holies. Now as we look at the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies is at the end. So how do we get there? You have to come first through the curtain, through the first curtain, through the gates. And then what is the first piece of furniture in the sanctuary when we come in the gates? The altar of sacrifice, the blood. Can't get to the altar, can't get to the most holy place, can't get to God's throne, can't get to the Shekinah glory without first going and stopping at the altar of brazen altar and offering the sacrifice there, the blood. And then the cleansing through the labor, the washing, 
And then the entering of the holy place with the bread, the word, the menorah, the Holy Spirit, the intercessory prayer, Yeshua praying for us, God giving us a heart and prayer for others, and then taking with the blood still, entering in to the Holy of Holies. And what's inside the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant, the angels, the mercy seat, and then what's inside the Ark of the Covenant? The covenant, the Ten Commandments, God's covenant, God's promises to us, the Ten Commandments. And then he's able to write his commandments in our hearts, in our minds, the new heart, the new mind, because the conscience has been cleansed through the blood of the Lamb. And so now he can renew us and live those out of us. But you see, the, normal, the human reasoning is we put the commandments at the front. We start trying to be good before we can come to God. Well, when I clean up my act, then I'll come to him. And again, all religions, that's what it's based on. And we try to better ourselves. We try and live out his word. Or we try and teach it that way. We try and teach someone to change their life and be good. Teach them to eat this, do this, live this way. No, it's got to be first the blood. The brazen altar is first when we enter the Holy of Holies and come into God's presence, the commandments are there to be placed in our hearts and lived out of us and through us. The justification and then the sanctification taking place. So let us come boldly to enter the holies by the blood of Yeshua through his new way, which he has consecrated for us, which he has paved the way for us by his blood. And we can draw near with our hearts in full assurance of faith because God is faithful he has shed his blood. He's already paid it for us. He's already sprinkled the way. We can follow his blood-stained path. And he removes the evil conscience out of our minds and out of our hearts and out of our lives down to the basis. The root removes it all and sets us free. And we can hold fast our confession without wavering, without an up-and-down life, but victorious from victory to victory by his grace, by his power, trusting in him through his eternal spirit. And then that will cause us to love one another. It will build one another up. That will stir one another up in love and good works. Not in condemnation. And so, so there is a teaching. There is a time for teaching. There is a time for educating. There is a time for lifting each other up. There is a time for encouraging others to move forward in their faith and to grow but in love, in mercy, in knowing what it took on our part, surrender and confession and the blood of the Messiah, the death of Messiah, it's crucifying him, presenting him in his blood before the Father. Could you imagine accidentally killing someone and then having to tell that person's father that you killed him? How much more to come before the Father, come before the throne and say, I killed your son. My sin killed your son. But that's what we do every time we confess. That's what we do every time we sin. And Cain wasn't willing to do that. Are we willing to do that? So build each other up with good works, knowing what it took for us to go through. Thus we will have patience 
and mercy and love towards others as we lift them up and encourage them to stand in God's presence, to take hold of his grace, to take hold of his strong, strong arm, to take hold of his strength, to his power, and to live righteously. And then verse 25, we will not forsake assembling ourselves together. That's part of it. If we've come boldly before God's throne, if we see his face, we will also want to be with others. It's a natural outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so if we don't, if we don't like coming together with others, we think we can just be saved on our own and we're okay by ourselves. And that is a sign that we are not in that full fellowship with the Lord. Because he wants his whole family at the table. He's not happy until we're all there. He wants us together as one. They may be one as we are one. He wants us to have that oneness. And that comes in coming together, in unity together, with God's angels present, God's spirit among us, living in us and out of us, loving one another, helping one another, encouraging one another, building each other up, strengthening one another. But all of that is contrary to the carnal nature. So naturally, we don't want that. We don't like that. And so we resist that. We want to go it alone. Again, that's the spirit of Cain. That was the offering of Cain. He's doing it his way. God calls us to come together in unity, in fellowship, and in love. His way. And not forsaking as is common to some. But to come together, to worship the Lord together, to sing his praises together, to hear his word together, to pray for one another, to intercede for one another. And so, as we prepare to pray, God has given you the gift of conviction and there's some area in your life that God has shown you. And maybe you've been offering an offering of Cain in just one area. Or you've been coming before God and presenting that area of your life, that good work, that dead work to him. Maybe one time it was done righteously in your life, but now it's become grudgingly or a struggle, difficult, burdensome, and you want to resurrender that. You want to confess that. You want to give that over to the Lord and accept his forgiveness, accept his cleansing, and accept his power to be victorious and joyful in that area. In a moment we pray, give that area over to him. Secondly, if you've never accepted the blood of the Lamb, maybe you've been walking, just entered in over the wall, didn't come through the gate, didn't come through the brazen altar, never surrendered and confessed your need of him, never have realized what his death meant. Maybe you believe, yeah, Yeshua died for me, but really understanding your, your, your cause of his death, how you killed him, how his blood was shed for you, how it pains his heart, how it pained the Father. You're having a new realization, you want to praise him and thank him for that great sacrifice that he gave himself for you. And you want to accept his sacrifice in your behalf. 
And you want to thank him for loving you with an everlasting love. You want to thank him for coming before you and dying even before you sinned, even before you became an enemy of his, that he first gave himself for you. That constant, continual, eternal love that he has for you. Knowing your name even before Adam and Eve were created, knowing your need and loving you with an everlasting love. So if you want to accept him into your heart and mind and thank him for his great love for you, I invite you to do that. If you have been in some area of your life in rebellion against him, maybe just one sin, maybe like that rich young ruler, one area you're lacking, don't go away sorrowful. Surrender to the Lord and accept his love and be embraced by him. Allow him to run out and grab you and accept you and carry you into his throne. Place you high and lift it up as his beloved child whom he greatly loves. Who he paid for with his own son. He cherishes you just as much as he cherishes his own son. You are his. And so if that applies to you, in a moment we pray, accept his embrace. Hear his voice calling your name and surrender all to him. Let go of the pride, let go of the self, let go of your ways and accept his ways. And if there's some area in your life that you've been struggling and haven't had victory, and you need that eternal spirit, you need that power, you need the power in the blood, to give you victory and reach out by and grab a hold of his strength and let him live it out out of you and make you victorious in that area. Any of those areas or some other area God's been speaking to your heart, let's pray and let God work in us. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we're thankful for your eternal love for us. Thank you, Lord, for being willing to be sacrificed even before you created Adam and Eve from the foundation of the world. Thank you for leaving heaven and coming down to this earth and shedding your blood in our behalf. Thank you for giving yourself for us. And we want to confess our part in that. We want to confess our sins that have crucified you, that have killed you. We're going to acknowledge that we are the ones. We have been your enemy. We have been the ones who killed you. We are the ones who have crucified you. Thank you for loving us in spite of this. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for cleansing our dead conscience, our dead works, our evil conscience, our wicked conscience, our wicked hearts, our wicked motives. Thank you for cleansing us. Remove it from us. Every area, whatever area you're convicting us of, but every area, and wash us clean. Forgive us for presenting ourselves in our own clothing. We want to surrender all. Give us the gift of surrender. We want your power to live in us and out of us. Make us victorious. Fill us with your eternal spirit. Lift us up, give us love for one another, burden for one another, intercessory prayer for one another, joyful living and praising you and worshiping together in your spirit and in your power. 
in Yeshua's holy name. Amen.